All right, guys, welcome back to Within Tolerance. This is episode 67, and we have a guest on. We have Matthias from Hermley, and he is the, let's see, you're the... I'm the applications manager. Okay, and so how long have you been working for the company? Been with Hermley about six and a half years now. Okay, and then I guess for everyone listening, I'm and myself included, and Dylan, let's just start off. How did you get into manufacturing? You know, go as far back as you want. You know, were you a kid that just liked to make things? Were you a tinkerer? Did you like to just build things in your garage? To kind of present day, how did you get the job, and what do you kind of do now? Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, for me, I've always liked to work with my hands. Uh, that was kind of my big thing. I don't know how many calculators I tore apart when I was a kid, and other stuff that my parents like, you know, they couldn't believe, um, well, why would he tear this apart? But it was kind of the interesting thing is how, how does this work? So um, it did take a little bit of a turn there. Um, so after I got done with high school, um, well, we moved to the States. So I finished up high school here in the States. And then um, what my path really was going to be is I was going to go join the service. And I got an Army ROTC scholarship to go to Marquette and uh, for mechanical engineering. And I did that for two years, but pretty much after that second year, I realized that schooling is just not my thing. And, um, you know, I was kind of making a decision, do I want to keep paying for um, a college degree that I'm not really that into and it's not working for me. And so there was a point where I just said, you know what, I'm going to stop before anything else happens because was, the army was like, well, if you don't bring your grades up, you're going to pay for it and you get two choices. You can either go then start enlisting and uh, then we can work something out or, you know, you keep paying for it. And I made the choice to just completely stop at that point. And um, during that time, though, already I um, worked a lot in the machine shop there and um, I got into contact with the gentleman um, that I worked for or ended up working for. So the summer before there, I already did some work for him and um, then once I left uh, Marquette, I worked for him uh, full time. So what they did is um, they made sewage aeration products. Um, it's a pretty unique industry, but essentially you can uh, look at it as a 20 foot PVC pipe. They put these uh, platters on there with the rubber membranes that have holes in them. And then they uh, put those in the bottom of uh, sewer tanks and they pump air through them and the air then uh, lets the bacteria uh, you know, grow and do their job. So the assembly of these things, and I mean, we're talking about, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pipes for one of these tanks, he wanted to automate. So um, essentially with the engineer there, um, me there, we kind of put together this machine um, that had a robot on it that took these cups, you know, placed them on there, ultrasonically welded them to it and so on. Um, Kind of, it was pretty dependent on uh, right around the, you know, when the last crisis was and the municipality still had money, but that was also on that kind of wave going down. So at the end there, when we were really done with the project, work was slowing down. And, um, you know, for me, it was time to go explore other avenues. So I started working at uh, a company here at the cylindrical grinding. I uh, pretty much went in there. I said to the guy, Hey, you know what? You don't have to pay me a lot. I just really want to learn how to grind. So then I did that for a while while still working at the other company, but really started uh, cylindrical grinding, um, surface grinding, a whole bunch of things. And then um, going on, 
essentially I said, well, you know, it's time that I get some credentials. And um, after that, I was fortunate enough to start or get an apprenticeship at a company here in New Berlin, uh, Stanic Tool, as a toolmaker apprentice. And then um, I did the, the four-year apprenticeship for toolmaking and worked there uh, those four years. And then um, after that, again, kind of, you know, that economic thing is going on and I really didn't want to be out of a job. So I started looking around and uh, that's where I saw that Hermley was hiring and me having, you know, me knowing what the company was about from Germany already. Um, I was like, hey, I'm going to give these guys a call and then uh, kind of went from there. Awesome. So what's the... the uh path through Hermley like how did what did you start as and then how did you work your way up to applications manager so uh really um you know I started as a junior application engineer um you really you, you start out doing trainings of the control so for Hermley we integrate the uh, Heidenheim and Siemens controls and I've come from a pretty much a Fundup background um, I mean not all Fundup controls but you know it's like kind of that that standard, uh, if you will. So I didn't really know much about that. So the first step was really, you know, getting introduced to Haydn and understanding the machine and um, doing that. Um, and then you, you, you know, you kind of work your way through that. And then when you get a good understanding enough, then well, you, then you start interacting with customers. So I did a significant amount of time on the hotline. Um, so way the company set up is we have our sales, we have our financial, we have our service department and we have the applications department and both the service and the sales or the service and the applications department have what we call a hotline. So that is where somebody can send in an email, give us a call in order to get anything resolved and working that hotline then kind of, um, you know, it really, it really gets you digging into problems and then you having to understand those problems really helps you out understanding the machine that much more right because you can go to a you can go to a training class and i did go to germany for training but you know it's using the machine doing this doing that it's really when you have to start kind of going on your own to um to investigate an issue is where you really kind of get those fundamentals um down and that understanding down of what's really going on in the background um, after that, I started doing test cuts, um, started programming demos, and uh, really what happened somewhere along the line, we, you know, we had some changes. Uh, people came, people left, people changed around the positions, and uh, the position for application manager was uh, open at that point. And uh, Mr. Schnitzer, he approached me um, and said, hey, are you interested in doing this? So at first, we did it kind of on... Um, call it a junior level where he was still in charge of the applications department. But then, you know, after about half a year, um, it kind of became finalized that I would now um, run the department. Awesome. Well, we really appreciate you coming on. It sounds like you're definitely the, the right person for this podcast. Um, yeah. So I guess a question I have for you is, so day to day, what are you doing um, currently? Oh, boy. <laughs> um Quite a bit of things. I mean, um, so one of the nice things about the job is because it's not just you're you're not just doing one thing. Um, I mean, the, it's it's very email intensive on my end, but 
one of the big things is is I'm not going to lose touch with the machine. So, you know, it's uh, I might not be on the machine every day, but then there are certain projects that I'll say, you know what, I'm going to do this. And then it's just a matter of, you know, you're working through these projects. Um, the biggest thing for me right now is really interacting or getting stuff planned out, um, whether that's sending an AE to a customer, whether you know, it's new projects that are coming on, taking a look at those projects um, and then seeing, well, what do we need to do to get this into the pipeline, to get it worked on? Uh, so if we were to take a look, for example, a new customer approaches us and says, hey, you know, this is kind of what I'm trying to do. Um, you know, this is my thing, what I'm thinking of, um, you know, what do you guys think? So then that all happens on the sales level. And then uh, usually what happens at that point is sales uh, manager is going to come um, either to myself or uh, to my boss, Mr. Schnitzer. And, um, you know, he'll say, hey, you know, I got this project here. Um, we would like to get a feasibility study. So then the next thing that happens is um, it gets to the applications department. And at that point, I'll take a look at it and say, okay, you know, is, is, is this something? Is this not something? Is who should work on it? And, you know, what direction do you really want this to go? And then um, at that point, you know, I, I see, do we have enough information to get started on it? Do I need to go back to the sales uh, manager and say, hey, we need this and this additional information to make any determination? Um, and then once you have that kind of foundation laid out, then I usually hand that off to one of my colleagues that will then kind of take the project over and um, kind of work it through um, until the end of it. Uh, so that's pretty much my day-to-day is a lot of emails, but I still try <laughs> to be out there on the shop floor too and um, run machines because, you know, for me to, to go to a customer, and I do that quite a bit too, is I just go to customers, I demo machines, um, you know, being able to talk intelligently about the product, you, you really got to have some hands-on. Definitely. So kind of stepping back then, I guess, why do, or like, who is Hermley's major customers? Why do people come to Hermley versus other machine tools? You know, what, what do you guys specialize in? What do you guys, what, what's your value proposition to your customers? Um, well, I guess if you wanted to just define it, it's going to be high-end five-axis milling machines. Uh, so we do build some three-axis machines. There's a couple out on the market right now. Um, but Primarily, we build five-axis milling machines, um, and it's a pretty broad variety. So it's not just, uh, you know, it's not just aerospace. Even though, you know, if you look at our machine design, rotational symmetrical components, it's like there's nothing nicer than the setup that you know we have with the, the ANC Trunnion for that. Um, it's just ideal for it. But we also have a lot of customers in the dye and mold industry, uh, medical industry. Um, so it's a pretty broad range of um, customer, customers that we cater to. I think the biggest thing is, is you know, if you're looking for a really reliable product, um, then we can have an answer for you. Okay, that's great. So we've got quite a, or a few customer questions. Um, we'll kind of bounce around. Um, Let's see. Oh, so Obsidian Tools asks, like, what are the differences between a gear and a direct-driven C-axis regarding to longevity, precision, speed, and stiffness, and is it worth the upgrade? So do you guys offer both gear and direct-driven? Yes, correct. So um, there's two lines of machines. We have the performance line, and then we have a high-performance line. 
On the performance line, we only offer gear-driven um, or warm-driven uh, C-axes. Then on the high-performance line, you can option to have a uh, torque motor in the C-axis. Um, it's, it's kind of an interesting topic, and when I um, looked at this, uh, you know, it's, yes, it is a mechanical system, and yes, there is going to be wear. It's just, you know, that's kind of the nature of a mechanical system. Um, but that being said, I wouldn't say it's, you know, less accurate, less good, or anything. It's, I would say it's, you know, the biggest difference that you're going to see is pretty much speed. And in regards to the longevity of it, you know, there's machines out there that are warm driven, you know, with 15 plus years where you're not necessarily replacing it, you're just adjusting it. So if you look at the whole warm uh, gear system, there's a spacer in there that you can grind down. So should there be any um, backlash, if you will, then um, you can grind in that spacer. But that being said is on all of our axes, there are scales. So the machine always knows where it's at and it's striving to that. So it's not necessarily less accurate than that. Um, the best thing to always look at is, you know, really what do your parts demand? Um, are, you, are you doing a lot of C-axis movement where you're constantly turning the C-axis? You know, that's when I would say, you know, we definitely should look at a torque motor. Um, are you using a... Um, you know, are you using a lot of collision avoidance? So especially in the die and mold industry, right? You say, okay, you know, machine down from the top. And then as soon as your holder starts uh, getting closer to uh, two millimeters, start tilting away. So this collision avoidance moves usually require that C-axis to turn really quickly. And then uh, being able to have that dynamic motion is really where you then say again, you know, I, I want a torque motor because it is more dynamic than a warm driven. Uh, system. But, you know, if you have a lot of, um, let's call them geometrical parts where you, you know, where it's a, essentially a cube or an L or whatnot, and it has a whole bunch of holes at different angles, you know, that's really, um, you don't necessarily need one. Um, that being said, you still have the capability with the warm drive to do both simultaneous moves. I mean, the, the bull was done on a machine that had a warm drive and pretty much all of the finishing paths were all simultaneous paths okay um so we had another question about turning on the mills is that an option that is only available with one or the other or is that something that you can do with either a gear, gear or a direct driven cx correct so that is only going to be available on the machines that have a torque motor so only on the high performance line and then we only offer it on the c42 the c52 and the c62 Okay, so um, what? I guess uh, what kind of customers were you seeing that are are buying that, and like why did Hermley start offering turning on on such a larger five axis? I mean, I feel like that's kind of a a niche product. Well, um, I mean, there is a quite a bit of customers that aren't in aerospace, but I'm going to definitely say most of the people in aerospace, again, those rotational symmetrical components, um, that's really where those tools kind of shine. Um, it's because you can have your part, it's one setup, or, you know, you may have to have to flip it around for the other side and it's then two setups rather than going from a turning machine or a VTL to a mill and then back and forth. So it's like you do everything on there and um, for anything really in a jet uh, engine there, if you look at it where you, you know, where you're mounting the blades and whatnot, um, all those components are definite candidates for those types of machines. 
Gotcha. So you're talking like blisks and things like that are, are beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So it, that's kind of the way we, we look at it is rotational symmetrical components. So if you think about it, you know, an impeller, blisk, if they were all, you know, essentially revolve the items and then uh, you cut out the veins of it, right? Or if it's, uh, you know, a disc that holds the um, actual fan blades where you have the uh, fir tree profile in there to hold those, you know, those are all then components that you would see on a milking machine. Totally. So how do you guys hold the lathe tools? Is it just servo locked in the spindle or are there actually dogs that the the lathe tools orient to, or, you know, how does that work? How do you guys hold that so kind of rigidity? It depends on the model, um, or I should say it depends on the spindle more or less. Um, with the HSK 63 interface, it is, um, it's a essentially clamped hydraulically. Uh, you can almost look at it as like a collet. It just clamps down on the sides and it holds that in. So the, uh, the spindle will index to whatever degree the tool needs to sit at. And then um, it will lock up the system on the larger spindles. Um, there's a tooth coupling inside, and that once that engages, it gives you the um, kind of the fixed alignment, if you will. And talking about spindles, do you guys just have machines that use HSK in different sizes, or do you have any other types of spindles? So currently, we would uh, offer um, HSK type and as well as SK. So okay. HSK 63, HSK 100, and then the SK 40. Okay. Cool. Which SK is similar to a cat. Um, it usually on the, the cat, they don't have the notch. Um, on the SK uh, holders, there's a, a notch for uh, essentially the loading direction. Gotcha. And then we had a question from Adam, the machinist, and he talked about what are some important machine and accessory details to consider when shopping for five axis machines? Um, yeah. Um, and I'm assuming your answer would be, you know, part dependent or project dependent. Yes, definitely. I mean, um, you know, where do you start? So there's small machines, there's large machines. Um, you know, you, you can go all the way to the high end. You, you, there's also machines on the lower end. Um, you know, what are you trying to do? And what are you looking at? So I guess a question that I have, you know, just uh, coming up in conversation would be, so let's say I want to start a job shop doing really high end five axis parts, you know, one offs and whatnot. Um, do you guys have customers that buy machines for that purpose? Yeah. Um, no, I mean, there's definitely some, you know, places that are opening up shops and they're like, you know, I need the machine and I really want a five axis machine. And, you know, that's what they're going with. So kind of, again, to go back to that question, um, one of the things I would say first and foremost is, is what type of support can you expect? Um, you know, what I see a lot of times is people that have no five axis in their shops, which is probably the bulk of uh, our customers, you know, they, they have three axis, they have four axis um, horizontal machines, and then there's, you know, this next step to a full five axis machine. And, you know, it's it's kind of this, I don't want to say new territory, because it's essentially it's still the same things you're doing, you're just adding another axis, but there's, there's a couple things that go with it. And, you know, for somebody that you know, hasn't really dived into it, 
it can be a thing. So what type of support can you expect? You know, can you, can you call up a guy and say, hey, you know, I'm looking at all these vices and, you know, what, what should I really be looking at? And, you know, having somebody to be able to talk that through, I think that's one of the big key things is because you always have that kind of shoulder to lean on um, when, when you run up to a stop and it's not just like, well, you know, I'm hanging in the air now I got to figure it out myself. The other thing is, is, you know, going back to those parts. Uh, so, you know, consider your parts and consider what kinematic makes sense. And then, you know, what, what travels make sense. Um, a lot of times what we'll see is, you know, it's a large part and let's just take one of our machines the C42, for example, that has 800 millimeters in X. So then, um, you know, the part might be 850 millimeters. And then some people say, well, I can still machine this. I can still machine this. And well, what happens when you start tilting it? You know, how, how far is it projecting out from the table when it's tilted at 90 degrees? Do I still then have enough travel to the, to the front of the machine in, in the y-axis? So those are all things that you kind of want to play through because what you don't want to do is you don't want to have, yep, I got my machine. Now I got my part on there. Now I'm going to start machining, but all in a sudden you load your program and you're going to start running into all these uh, travel limit errors. Um, so that's definitely something that you want to consider the parts, your fixtures, and then what travels do I really need in order to accommodate that? Um, another important thing is, uh, I would say, is the uh, spindle to table clearance. So a good rule of thumb is um, essentially for us, um, our C slide going up and down from our traveling uh, gantry, modified gantry, there's a distance from the back of the sheet metal to the center line of the spindle. So as soon as I move my part, um, you know, 150 millimeters, whatever, whatever it is for the model, then I can say I can tilt up my table to 90 degrees and reach all the way around it without having any collision uh, considerations. So I, I would say that spindle to table clearance is a, is a big one because you know when you're when you got a large machine and you want to work smaller parts too is you need to be able to reach in there you don't want to have a tool that's three four hundred millimeters long um, then again the, the kinematic arrangement I think is, is pretty key too um, you know some kinematics um, they, they have their challenges I would say um, others are easier to understand I would say for us ours is pretty easy to understand I mean we have our X Y and Z in the top portion of the machine and then our A and C in the bottom portion of the machine. Once you're starting to look at, for example, mutating systems, you know, okay, now I'm turning this part. Well, what is that effect going to be? For me, I can say, all right, turn the A axis 90 degrees. Now I know I'm on the uh, back or front side of the uh, part. So those are all things to kind of consider. And then the biggest thing um, is geometry. So pretty much everything that builds up to a good machine, I would say, is the geometry of the machine. Um, if, you, you, if you have a solid geometry, then um, you're, all the things that happen afterwards are going to be so much easier. And with the geometry, what I mean is more like, you know, perpendicularity of all the planes, uh, straightnesses of the travels, um, all those things then later figure on and will reflect on your part. And if I remember right, you guys do things like build the zero point systems and things like that 
into your table too it, on on customer requests. Is that right? Correct. Um, so pretty much, you know, it's you you can configure the machine how how you would like it. Um, I mean, yeah, we have standard machines, we have standard tables. That's what we see most of the time. Um, but especially in the you know when it gets to automation, people are saying, hey, you know, I'm I'm using this in this um, um, system. For example, um, Lang has a um, zero point clamping system. You know, we can integrate that directly into the table, or maybe it's an Aroa system or whatnot. This can all be integrated into the table directly, and then um, handled that way. Which will save you on Z travel at least a little bit. Yes, um, even though there's uh, you know there's you want to be able to you know build up a little bit or go down a little bit so it's not necessarily that you always have to consider that sea travel um, unless of course you have really really tall parts um, so usually there's a general a generous amount of travel that you you do end up having okay yeah that makes sense because you want the part far enough far enough away from the bed that you can still get to it at different angles that makes yeah, total sense. Yeah, so I mean, a lot of people will say, "Well, I can't reach um, the table with the spindle." Um, you know, it really depends on the whole configuration, what type of table you have, what type of uh, machine model you have. But on none of the machines, the spindle will not touch the table. So usually, there's—I want to say, just off the top of my head—about a 200 to 150 millimeter clearance uh, for that, um, if not more. It really depends on the model and the table configuration. Um, but you really want that um, distance where let's call it a dead space where you can't really reach anything. Even you know, if you have a really stubby holder, you probably wouldn't even reach the table. But you want that dead space because most clamping systems, once you start building up, um, they'll get you to that center point or that center line of the A-axis. And that's really where you want your part to sit. So one of the ways to, to look at that is um, that the further away from a center line of any of the rotary axes your part lies, the more you could argue is uh, your error, right? Because if you if there's any uh, error in the whole system, the further out that or the the lot larger that triangle gets, right? The the more your error is going to be. So if you can kind of position your part right there in that let's call it a sweet spot, um, then it's really ideal. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um, so that actually kind of jumps into uh, D-Man 151 Racing's question. He wanted to know, you know, how does Hermley and how does Heidenhain handle dynamic fixture offsets versus tilted work planes? Um, what do you guys prefer when you're programming or advising programming on your machines? Um, how does how do your your machines handle that kind of thing? Sure. So pretty much for um, both the Heidenhain and Siemens control. Um, they call it different things, but essentially they're the same. Uh, so I'm going to go with Heidenhain here. Um, if you look at three plus two machining or tilted work plane, that would be a plane spatial function. And really what it does is um, essentially it turns the coordinate system about which axis you're defining. So if you're using plane spatial uh, with an SPA or SPA, SPB, or an SPZ definition, then you're essentially turning it about the X, turning it about the Y, and then turning it about the C axis. And depending on how you know how your numbers go, that's what it then turns that coordinate system on. You can then also tell the machine, okay, 
you turned it numerically, but now I want you to calculate what the resulting axis angles are and position to those axis angles. Um, and then your part now will be presented to the spindle again on that plane. So anytime you're working with three plus two, you really want to use a static uh, or a tilted work plane um, type of command. For true simultaneous is when you then do a dynamic uh, uh, work offset. And the best way to describe that is uh, essentially if you took a coordinate system, so if you took your um, X, Y, and C, so I believe it's called the hedron, right? Mm -hmm. And flopped it on the table. As soon as you put it on the table now, you turn on function TCPM. So that's what it's called on the Heidenheim side. Um, once you turn that on, and let's say I turn my table 90 degrees, I'm also turning that coordinate system 90 degrees. Versus as when I'm using um, plane spatial, the C axis will always point up in line with the spindle axis. Whereas now with the dynamic, you know, if I start now tilting my A axis, that might be pointing towards me, that might be pointing away from me. And essentially the coordinate system is moving with the table. So as soon as your C moves, it moves along with it. And once your A moves, the whole thing becomes at an, or it comes to an angle. So there is no which one is uh, better, which one is worse. It's essentially what are you trying to do? So if you're doing a three plus two operation, you really want to use um, a tilt of work plane function. And when you're doing simultaneous work, you really need to be using um, a uh, dynamic function, uh, such as function TCPM. On the older controls, it was uh, M128. On the Siemens control, it's going to be Traori. Um, so there is no, no this is the right one or this is the wrong one or you want to use that even though some people use the dynamic all the time um you, you can do that as well um it's just the uh, when you use plane spatial or cycle 800 you know having that coordinate system then kind of back in line with the machine just on a different plane um, makes it a lot easier when you're standing in front of the machine and saying well why is it drilling this hole now here and here you kind of can relate to it as a as a person again. Gotcha. So the machine doesn't really care what you're using. It'll still be just no. as accurate, but it, as far yeah. as human-friendly, it makes more sense to do tilted work plane when you're doing 3 plus 2. Correct. And I mean, you can you can, uh, you can give a, a 3 plus 2 definition. So if I use plane spatial and I give it a certain a, 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 or SPA, SPB, and SPC combination, I can tilt that or I can turn that coordinate system that X plus now looks in the X minus or looks in the Y, but the the uh, spindle axis will always be in line with the uh, Z of uh, my coordinate system. But again, you know, once you kind of understand that, well, why would I want to turn my coordinate system? Um, for me, it's a lot easier when, you know, when I'm, let's just work, say I'm working on a cube and I need to drill a hole in the back. So on the back face, right, I want to, then my machine to tilt up my part and drill that hole at a certain spot. And when I see, all right, I'm positioned at uh, plus 50 millimeters, a uh, hundred and something over, does that make sense? I can take a look at my print and say, yep, that makes sense. And then drill the hole versus if I were to do that in um, 
in a dynamic offset, that number might be something completely different. Um, so it makes it relatable. Gotcha. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And then kind of to dovetail off the end of that, um, we didn't have it written down, but what do you prefer personally? Do you prefer Heidenhain or Heidenhain or Siemens? Oh, boy. Um, I get that asked a lot. Um, the best way to answer that, though, is really uh, what are you trying to do? So the Siemens is an open platform. You can pretty much do whatever, whatever you put your mind to. Um, versus the Heidenhain is a closed platform, but it makes a lot of difficult things very easy. Versus the Siemens, it makes a lot of difficult things um, or a lot of easy things very difficult. Um, a good example for that is is on a Heidenhain, you know, I can go out in the shop right now. I can uh, call in the touch probe. I can uh, pick the cycle for probing a circle, and then within that cycle, I can say, you know what, on the screen, I want to see the result of the measurement. Now, there's ways to do that on a Siemens too, but there's a couple more steps involved. And then if you really wanted to dig into it, then you could say, you know what, I'm just going to write my own cycle because I don't like any of these cycles anyway. And I got all these functions available and, you know, then you, you can do your own thing. But it's, it's kind of, uh, what do you want to do? So if you, want, if you, if you like controlling things, uh, go with the Siemens. If you just, uh, you know, want to get out there, and get something done with the available tools already at your fingertips, then I would probably say go with the Heidenheim. Um, me personally, if uh, you know, if I had a garage shop, uh, probably a Heidenheim control. Um, if I was doing something that needed a lot of monitoring, a lot of evaluation, um, a lot of work in the background, then I would probably say, hey, you know, I'm going to go with the Siemens control. So, do you end up selling more Siemens controls with? higher level uh, automation systems? Not necessarily. Um, so I think the biggest, you know, the, the most machines we sell are going to be with the Heidenheim control, even though you can definitely say that the Siemens has caught up in the past couple of years. Um, so if you look at some of the previous, you know, it's Siemens 840, but then uh, there's different software revisions. And really with software revision uh, 4.5, 4.7, now 4.8, they have uh, really done a lot of things to make it easy to stand in front of the machine and say, hey, I just want to probe this. Versus in the past, you know, you had to know this cycle and then you had to know the variable that it saved it in in the background. And then you had to kind of know, well, how, how do I call this variable up now and how do I write something that will print it somewhere, whether that's on a screen or saves it in the file. Um, and that's why I think in the last couple of years, definitely Siemens is also caught up in those job shop environments where you want to be able to do those things rather easily. So going back to talking about your favorite control, I'm curious, what's your favorite machine to run? Like maybe back when you were, you know, working at some of these other companies doing machine work, you know, besides the Hermlet. Um, so the very first machine I ran was a Haas. Um, it was a tool room one, I think is what it was called. Um, after that, I worked on a Mitsura with the Yaskava control um, at another company. You know, then we started adding the Fanuc controls, the OSPs, the, um, you know, there was just a, a plethora of controls. Um, and that's kind of why I'm saying I was, all those Fanuc style controls. Um, I think Fanuc definitely has a, you know, its place in the industry and you can't ignore that, you know, it, its popularity 
but I think I would find myself really um, challenged going backwards now. Um, if you look at a Heidenheim control, uh, we could open up a, a control right now. You and me could stand there and I could say, what is this cycle doing? And if you looked at the screen, you're going to say, um, you're going to see cycle 200, universal drilling, and then there's going to be Q parameters below it. And after every Q parameter, there's going to be a comment. So without even knowing anything about the control, if you can just read that text, you would be able to then tell me, well, this is a drilling cycle. And then if we were to go into this cycle um, and say, hey, I want to drill 20 millimeters deep, you could look through and say, oh, drilling depth. All right, this is where I need to enter my 20 millimeters. Versus if you look at on other controls, you know, you're looking at, well, um, G81, then you got your XYZ, then you got your R, then you got, well, what is any of those things? And then on some controls, you know, it's W for the dwell, on some it's F, and it makes it pretty difficult to um, know unless you know, right? So that's why I'm saying it would be really hard for me to go back and I, I, if I went back to a shop, I definitely would want to run a Heidenheim control or a Siemens for that matter. Um, probably more so a Heidenheim. <laughs> I don't know, I'm always a little bit, uh, one day it's this one, one day it's that one. But both of the controls are pretty much at that level where you can you can actually understand what you got in front of you and it, it's user-friendly. Um, this is what we see a lot of the times too, is you know you got people coming from shops that have run Fanook their entire career and they wanna see G1, they wanna see a G0. Um, Heidenheim doesn't look at it as G0. If I want to move the machine from point A to point B, it's going to start with an L. So L for linear move. And then if I start that line and I say, yep, it, I want to have an X coordinate, I put in my X, then I error over to the next, and it already fills in Y. You know, it's, it's <laughs> very intuitive. So um, most of the people that are open to just giving it a try, we'll come back months later and say, hey, I don't ever want to run anything else again because it is just that intuitive. And, you know, when you get into the probing things, all this stuff is already there. So you just essentially have to um, grab it and then um, give it the values that you want um, in your process. And then even if you want to dig deeper, so, Yes, the Heidenheim is a uh, closed platform, but it also has variables available to you and it has functions. What do you want to do with those variables? So if I say, well, I'm going to measure this hole, then I can say, okay, well, um, the cycle writes it in Q150, Q151, Q152. Now I can say, well, if Q150 is greater than, let's just say five millimeters, then jump to this part in the program. If it's less than, I'll jump to this part in the program. So it's it even gets to the point where you know you, you don't necessarily have to be a PLC programmer or, or you know understand C or any of the uh, harder programming languages. You can simply implement these things and um, it, you know get some process monitoring going rather quickly. It, it is not as open as the Siemens control, but it, you know it gives you kind of those basic tools. Makes sense. So kind of going off of some of what you said, uh, one of Jake's questions was when Gunther finally gives you your own Hermley, what model would you choose and why? 
clients. Um, so it's definitely going to be the C650. Um, so the three-digit ones are your performance line? No. So to or give you a little bit of an overview, um, we have a C12, C22, C32, C42, C52, and a C62. Those are all high-performance machine. And then um, the uh, C250, C400, and C650 um, are the performance line. So yeah, anything with the three-digit is going to... Um, be a performance line machine. Okay, but for so me, it why was definitely the the, um, I would just say it's a broad range of uh, applications. So the way I look at it is, is you can always make a small part on a large machine, but you can't make a large part on a small machine. Um, and I just, you know, I really kind of fell in love with the those travels, and you know, it's it's big, but it's still not that that next step up to it, like a C fifty two or C sixty two. So you can do a lot of work in it. Um, there's in the, it's just, you know, I, I really like the machine. Um, overall working in front of it was great. And, um, just having that meter travel. So you have a 1,050 millimeters in X travel, I just think is um, I, ideal. Yeah, that's giant. It just allows for a lot of parts. And then, I mean, you can put a, a 1,500 kilograms on the table. So it's it's like you can throw a lot at the machine and then even if you you know if i were to then say okay you know i don't have any large work and then you start getting into the small work well at that point it's just well put a riser on the table and uh get that spindle to table or spindle to table clearance and then you can also work on small parts so it's kind of the an, a nice medium for me and that's uh why i would pick that and yeah you know, I, you know, if I had every choice and somebody could make the argument, well, why didn't you go with the high performance line? Um, you don't always need a high performance line. And, you know, with that also comes a lot of, um, you know, other things. So when you, you're starting to get into high performance, well, um, you know, do I, do I really need those dynamics? Do I really want it to even go that fast? If you stand in front of um, our C22 and that thing uh, makes a, a move, you know, you're going to blink it's already there um, versus you know on a larger machine and i don't know it's just that feel i guess of it um, and that's why i would go with that makes sense um so actually i was i was looking at the c650 right now on your website and i realized we don't have any questions but i'd love to talk a little bit about your collision protection on your spindles um that's mm -hmm. one of your, your the, the tabs on that and i i completely forgot to ask anything about that but that's it seems like a very uh, specific thing to Hermley. Mm -hmm. So yeah, what, what does it do and how does it work? And, uh, um, you know, what makes it special, I guess? Well, the best thing is if you don't ever use it. Um, but <laughs> if you do end up using it, it's uh, usually not a big deal. So I think that's uh, one of the things that a lot of customers appreciate because, uh, you know, if, if you have a collision, then um, usually that's a pretty pricey endeavor. Um, so what happens is if you have a spindle, and not all of our spindles have this, but if you have the spindle, and this is going to be like say the standard spindle, um, then essentially there is a uh, a system of um, crash um, cushions. So you can imagine it almost like a tube, and once you uh, act or once the once the collision happens, essentially you're going to crush these sleeves. 
And as soon as the sleeves get crushed, there is a ring that then gets actuated and it pushes on an emergency stop. And at that point, those uh, sleeves are then compressed. The uh, system is triggered. Um, and most of the time, you're going to end up giving us a call and saying, hey, you know, I had a collision. Um, it's giving me the uh, air message exchange spindle, spindle head. Um, and then you need to exchange it. But the process is pretty straightforward. So you're going to end up taking the sheet metal cover off the C-axis slide. You're going to unbolt the head of the machine. You're going to drop it out of the machine. So essentially, you're just going to park it on the table on a fixture. You're going to wheel up your C-axis. And then you have one or two options. You can either use an exchange head, or you could actually replace the uh, crush cushions, because most of the time, the crush cushions absorb all the forces of the collision. And then uh, you replace those uh, crush cushions, you torque them all back down, and then uh, you reinstall them in the system. You uh, perform a geometry check, and um, off you go. So if you look at, you know, if you look at it that way, um, I'm not 100% sure what the price is, but um, I, you know, those crush sleeves—they're—they're they're not really that expensive. Um, I want to say a couple hundred dollars will get you the set, and then the technician's time. Um, and whatnot, and then you're up and running usually within a day. If you exchange the spindle head, you know you um, you get a core charge for the one that you have. You ex you have a new uh, spindle head in there, um, and then you're also up and running with a relatively low um, lower cost. Um, and then obviously the time, um, like I said, usually within a day uh, you're back up and running. Where I would say a lot of the time then is taken in. Doing the geometry checks again. That's pretty amazing. I mean, that from from what you said, it sounds like it's you know ten percent the cost of a, a new spindle, if not less. Because um, I know those spindles are not cheap. So, yeah, I was curious. Do you know ballpark how much a new spindle would cost? Um, not off the top of my head. I want to say it's in the fifteen something, but don't quote me on that. Um, so that's if you're doing a replacement, um, right, right, right? But don't quote me on it. <laughs> and but a lot of the times, and a lot of customers even do this themselves. So again, we we offer service training as well, and you can uh, get the training to where we get you to the point where you can exchange these parts yourself. And you know, we have a lot of customers; they'll change these crush cushions themselves, they'll change the spindle themselves, and you know, depending on. Uh, I don't want to say how good you are at it. You <laughs> want that practice, but you can have that thing back up and going again. Uh, you know, probably the same day. That's amazing. Uh, that is really definitely a, a special thing about your guys' machines. I mean, what you got to say is, is it doesn't protect you from all crashes. So what they tried to do is they tried to find, you know, what is the force that the sparings allow, and then just right below that have that of the uh, crush cushion. So you can get the maximum out of the bearings, but then it's that fine line that you're trying to walk of what's maximum allowable and what's, uh, you know, what's still healthy for the bearings. Um, if you can, if you look at it then further a little bit is, you know, if you have a, a radial collision, which aren't that uh, common, usually your collisions happen in a C direction. Um, in a C direction, that's really where that force gets absorbed, even though it can also absorb it in um, the X and Y plane, but not as easily as um, 
in the sea plane. And most of your collisions are going to happen in the sea direction, whether that's because you have your work offset wrong or your tool length wrong. Usually you come over your part and then you wrap it down. And you know, that's, that's where we see most of the collisions happening. And I guess totally. another question we had from split 141 was what is the worst crash you've ever seen or been a part of? Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, I've seen some pretty interesting pictures. Uh, I've seen some, uh, some HSK, uh, interfaces completely sheared off. Um, Whoa. You know, some lasers, uh, that got completely destroyed and all of that. The one that I've seen myself, uh, wasn't with Hermley. It was in my previous job. Um, somebody, put, uh, I think it was like a 40 millimeter drill. Um, you know, one of the indexable drills into a part. He walked away, you know, the insert pop, and uh, he essentially welded that drill into the steel, and then uh, it pulled out the whole uh, retention of assembly. And uh, yeah, that was kind of the worst thing I've seen. I mean, kind of when the spindle spills its guts on on the table. Wow. And uh, I mean, got also got to see some holes drilled into table. Um, it's, you get to see a lot of interesting things, but I want to see the worst <laughs> one is uh, probably where where that drill melted into the into the steel and uh, pulled out that retention assembly. Wow, that, that's scary stuff for sure. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've had a couple of oopsies myself, um, pretty much. I think the one that was the most devastating was to me was right at the beginning of my career, um, where I was building that machine. And, you know, I went to my boss, I said, you know, we need to order this end mill. The end mill costs $300. And he's like, well, do we really need it? And I'm like, yeah, I really need that length. And then, uh, you know, get it all set up. And then it was a, I think it was a three quarter end mill. And uh, I had my path going, and all of a sudden, you know, I had a wrong number program, and then the oh, thing just uh, snapped off, and I was just <laughs> devastated because I had to go back to him for a $300 ML. I mean, uh, today I look at it, it's like, well, it was just an animal, it wasn't that big of a deal. But I think back then, and just how new I was to everything, that was kind of one of the most devastating things. Yeah. That today, like one of my guys comes up to me and says, hey, um, I just, uh, I just broke off that end mill. I'm like, okay, well, did it damage the machine? And then as soon as he says no, and I'm like, okay, just, uh, grab another one. <laughs> you know, the pain now. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I think especially for people that are starting out and, you know, it's, it's like, well, $300 for an end mill. And then you, you use the 10 seconds and all of a sudden it just, you got two pieces laying in front of you. That's pretty, uh. But, it, you know, I think it's also part of uh, the growing experience. So I think in your career, you, you have to have those experiences because, you know, they, they teach you something, I think. Definitely. Yeah, we, we've talked at length over the, the year we've been podcasting about how machining constantly humbles you. Um, and every time you, uh, you know, think you're hot stuff, it comes back to bite you. And it's it's definitely those kind of experiences that where you learn the most. Mm. No, definitely. <laughs> um, so Jake had a few questions and, and let's kind of maybe go down the path of uh, programming a little bit. So you are a heavy power mill user, is that correct? That is correct. So what's your 
most favorite and your least favorite power mail feature or function or anything like that? Um, my favorite is definitely going to be being able to toolpath edit. So um, that, you know, that's a pretty broad range in power mill, but pretty much I can take a, you know, let's just take a line path and I say, well, it's, it's a little too long. I don't want it to go that long. And then I just say, well, trim it at this point and throw the rest away. Um, you can, uh, you know, you, a lot of times what happens is, uh, let's just say, you know, I got a mouse in front of me right now and I want to, I want to throw a five axis path at it and just calculate it out. And generally speaking, it will be a nice tool path, but there's going to be some areas where, you know, there might be some weird movements um, on the undercuts or on this and this part. Now you can spend a lot of time trying to, you know, break up surfaces. You can spend a lot of time trying to feed it exactly the right parameters, feed it exactly the, the right surfaces and whatnot in order to get that, perfect toolpath or you can just say you know what i'm going to let it calculate the whole thing and whatever i like i don't like i'm going to throw out um going back and just saying hey you know i i have this feed rate um it didn't work well i'm just going to tell the system now to use a different feed rate i don't have to recalculate the toolpath i just go into my edit menu i say well i want to edit this and this parameter of it and i edit that um, so that is the toolpath editing capability is definitely my favorite um, part of PowerMill. Okay, and then what about your least favorite, or what takes? What do you find difficult to program or, or difficult to use in PowerMill? Um, it's not so much the programming part of it. It's um, so when you do five-axis toolpaths, um, or I should say, you know, when you're using ball end mills, you can either post to the tip or you can post to the center line. Um, and all my five axis tool paths that I run a ball end mill on, I always post to center line. Um, the reason for that is, is, um, you know, when you have certain moves and if you were to look at the tool path on, for example, Simcoe, if you post to the tip, it might look like a, a ball of yarn. It's just a jumbled mess. And when you look at it on, um, the center line posted path, it might be a nice straight line. And I wish that PowerMill could show me that on the screen, but it can only show you tip moves. It cannot uh, show you uh, center uh, tool paths. It can post to the center, but it doesn't show you that. And the way I've talked to the, or I've talked to um, an Autodesk guy about this, and he says, you know, in the background, you have both. Uh, calculate a tool paths, but you can't, um, you can't see the center line one. It's just inherent in the numbers in the background in your cut file. Um, but it's not something that you can see on the screen. And one of the things that I'm a big believer in is, is look at your tool path, look at the points of those tool path. And if that stuff looks good, you're going to have a good looking part. Um, most of the time. But if you already see there's the, you know, you got these zigzaggy lines on, on your toolpath, then I would say, you know, what, what are you going to expect to reflect on your part? So a lot of times what we have is we have uh, customers calling in and they're like, well, you know, I got all this, uh, I got these dots on my part and I don't understand where it comes from or 
my machines kind of has like a jerky move. So he asked that you then send us the program and we'll take a look at that program. And a lot of times what we can do is you can just zoom in that area and you'll see these points and they'll make little zigzag lines. And you know, it's directly reflected on what your machine's gonna do. Um, it's kind of that mentality of uh, garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> Definitely. So that's why I want to see exactly the the path that my that I'm going to output as a NC code, and I want to see those points. And not being able to see the the center line of the tool kind of is a big bummer for me. Yeah, that that definitely sounds like it could be a little frustrating. Um, so speaking of of tool pathing and all of that. Um, you were the one who programmed the bull from IMTS 2018. And uh, so Jake asked, what type of tool path did you use on the bull testicles? But let's kind of step back before you answer that and just talk about the whole process of making the bull. Um, where'd you start? Where'd you, you know, what uh, programs did you have to use? What kind of challenges did you face? Sure. So um, I'll step back just a little bit further. Um, so usually what happens when we look at trade shows, you know, we'll look at, well, what do we want to show at these trade shows? Um, and we kind of come up with the, you know, this might be cool, this might be cool, this might be cool. And then we kind of finalize on something. So we said, you know, what a bull would be cool because, you know, what does a bull symbolize? It, it symbolizes strength, essentially. So that was one of the driving factors behind it. Then we gave it the, a name, called it Fritz. And uh, then we said, yep, that's what we're going to do. All right, now let's do it. So we ended up uh, buying an STL model. Um, an STL model is not really ideal to machine, just uh, depending on how those triangles are. I mean, you could have essentially seen a, a whole bunch of triangles on the part. Right? And we didn't want that. So we took that STL model and we essentially constructed surfaces over the whole model. Um, that probably was the biggest challenge in the whole project. Um, essentially, what, what I ended up doing is, is I just placed a whole bunch of lines um, on the STL. And then out of those lines, I created surfaces. And then you start trimming together all those surfaces. And I mean, I think overall, just to define the body, I think it's about a thousand surfaces that have to be constructed. Jeez. Um, and you know, it's, it's a pretty, pretty interesting process, but you really start understanding how surfaces are built. What do you need in surfaces? What, what do those individual UV lines need to look like? And, you know, then you can kind of see an output of it too. And then not being able to understand the whole trimming that goes into that surface, because for most people, you know, you look at your part, well, it's just a, a 3d geometry on your screen, but there's, you know, there's so much more behind it. Um, and I think being able to understand that and being able to manipulate it, um, you know, then gives you a lot of tools that are very helpful if, if once you start applying them in real life. Um, so once we had the model generated and we didn't even have it completely generated. So I actually started roughing the block um, with part of the STL. So it was kind of this back and forth process of, you know, I'm programming now. Uh, running the, the the part on the machine, and I'm going to go back and I'm going to start uh, getting these last couple of surfaces built around the face area or this area, and then uh, I ended up, you know, going importing 
and importing and importing newer revisions of the model. And that was uh, also pretty interesting. Um, one of the things that you can see if you look at the front two feet, for example, I never understood why it took so long to calculate, but I forgot to delete um, certain um, surfaces. So there were two surfaces of the hoof of the bull. And you can kind of see too on the, on the outcome of it, it's, it's like a weird pattern on that versus on the back, those tool paths calculate really fast and it looks really good. Um, but that whole process of, you know, you, you got to get going on machining because you're running out of time. You know, IMTS is just around the corner, but you're still not 100% done with the model. Um, <laughs> that was uh, fun as well. Um, How did you do the, the tail with it being free floating like that? Yeah. Um, so what I did there is essentially I drew, a, I think it was like a 10 millimeter thick, uh, it's just like a, a wall. And I machined all the way around that right to the end. And then at the end, I started working away from the front of the tail. So right where it uh, kind of curves up there, um, just uh, start peeling away in there. Um, and then once you had a certain amount of length, I went in there and I finished underneath. And then, you know, you cut back a little more and then you finish again underneath and until you have the entire um, tail cleared out pretty much. So that essentially was just like an extruded uh, solid underneath it where I said through the whole roughing process and the whole kind of right there till the end where I said, you know, don't cut this area. Okay. And then I had a question. What was the total cycle time for that? I believe that was 50 hours. Wow. That's impressive. Uh, but I mean, you know, it's uh, it started out as, uh, I think it was 1,024 pounds or so. Um, Whoa. I didn't I realize remember that kilogram. That's the block of aluminum. So it was a 500 kilogram block of aluminum. And then we whittled it down to a 100 kilograms. Jeez. <laughs> it was a lot of chips. How long did that take you to program? I want to say, you know, over, including the the modeling, um, I want to say it was about a four to three month time period. Wow. But that being said too, is, you know, for us to do those, these demos, it's not like you sit there all eight hours a day for or five days a week doing this. Because it's still, you know, you still have your daily business, right? You still got to get all the other stuff. So it might be an email coming in, say, hey, we need a time study on this. We need a feasibility study on that. Um, you do that. And then, you know, the bull was just one project. There was a lot of other projects that happened too. Um, and it, so you, it's not just a dedicated four-month period. Um, it's more of a four-month period where you, you you took time to do that of course yeah so what's going to happen with the uh imts demos that you had for this year because uh jake was well, saying that maybe he got he he helped you out with those or there was a collaboration there uh yeah um so those demos are actually being worked on yet um i mean yes imts didn't happen this year so it kind of pushed the time frame of how how soon we had to get these done um a little past but we're still actively working on that um and hopefully by the end of the year we'll be ready to show that 
Awesome. Unfortunately, That's I'm not going to say what it uh, what it is yet, though. No, no worries. I, we'll, we'll we'll all be waiting for it for sure, though. That'll be great. So, uh, kind of jumping back into your machines, Obsidian Tools asks, what are the differences between high precision machines like the Hermley and an ultra high precision like the Kern, and also Split One Forty Ones. Kind of tail ending that was uh, what tech makes your tier of five axis so much more accurate and repeatable than like a lower tier five axis. Yeah. Um, well, tackle those in two different things, I would say, is probably the best thing. Um, I don't think you can really compare a Kern to our machine. Um, they're a little different animals. They serve different markets. Um, Kern is a very high accurate machine. Um, but if you look at it, most of their sizes, so they have, uh, I think, four different models with the, with the micro and the pyramid. Um, so I mm-hmm. think there's like three different micro models and there's one pyramid. And if you look at those, all with the exception of the pyramid, have a travel that's comparable to our C12. And our C12 is going to be our smallest machine. If you look at the total capacity of those tables, you know, they have, a, I think it's a 50 kilogram capacity that they have on the table. We can put 120 or 150 kilograms on a C12. So it is a, a little bit different of an animal. I mean. Uh, I'm not 100% versed on their product, but I believe they uh, have a lot of uh, high RPM spindles. So um, I believe usually between the 30 and 40,000s, right? And um, their interface, you know, it's a, I believe on HSK 40. Um, we have a HSK 63 interface on there. Um, so yes, it, it's very accurate, but it's really tailored towards that really s- smaller parts that need that high accuracy. Um, you know, one of the ways to look at it is, uh, can you put a 42 millimeter drill in there and drill some 4140 heat treat? I can go out there right now and I know I can do that on any of our machines and I'm not even breaking a sweat. <laughs> I don't think you're going to do that on an HSK 40 machine. Um, so they're, they're kind of tailored towards different avenues, right? Um, and then the other thing is, is I think a lot of times you're, you're looking at it, um, and you're looking at numbers and what do those numbers really mean? So in current is really, really accurate. Um, but I would say, you know, for what we're doing is, uh, you know, we're pretty darn accurate as well. And I don't think that, you know, you, if you look at it, it's, it's that far away. Um, I mean, we're, we're all talking about microns here. Kern is going to be talking probably two to five microns. Um, we might be talking, um, you know, 810 something like that um depending on what standard you use and when you're comparing all of these is that's one of the most important things is uh you know how do you define accuracy you know uh, a lot of times people are saying well your positioning tolerance is uh, way larger than um, a different machine well the way that those numbers are reported might be to the jis standard well, we report numbers to the VDI um, standard. Um, and for those standards then is, well, how, how do you measure the uh, positioning accuracy? You know, do you travel forwards and backwards and then um, you evaluate or do you just travel to one point and then travel to one point and you evaluate? And so all those numbers, you really have to compare apples to apples. Um, the one thing is, is you know, too, uh, a Kern 
you know, you, you'll be able to machine a mirror finish and that thing's not going to break a sweat. It is an ultra high accurate machine. Um, but again, you know, can I, can I make accurate part, large parts um, that weigh several hundred kilograms? So um, I would say those are, you know, kind of, that's where you start getting into the differences. Um, I mean, the other thing that you can't um, neglect is, you know, how, how are they driving their machines? So how, how are they set up? It's, it's a completely different concept. And that's why I don't like to say, you know, I, I wouldn't want to compare a Hernley to a Kern in, in that sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense. They're different, completely different machines. Yeah. So then what about um, what makes your machines so much more accurate than say like, you know, a Haas UMC or something like that? Like what, what does Hermley do in your design or in your software integration that makes it, I mean, eight microns is incredibly high accurate still, it, it, especially, you know, volumetrically or anything like that. So what makes your machine so, so accurate, you know, for such large uh, payloads and things like that. Yeah. So what I would say is, um, when you, when you start at the base of things, right, it is, uh, pretty much the whole machine is, um, with the exception of the, the gantry and whatnot, and, you know, smaller components, but the bed itself where the trunnion is housed, that is one casting, um, on the smaller machines, that's a mineral casting on the larger machines, the C52 and C62. Uh, that's a cast iron casting, um, and it really starts there. Your next step then is is uh, geometry. So I always talk about geometry, but that's how perpendicular and how planar, and you know how is that whole system? How good is that? The better that that is, the better your result is going to be, because. You know, you can, you can have one mechanical side and then you have a Heidenheim control. Yes, we do some stuff on the Heidenheim control that's unique to Hermley, but generally speaking, I put a Heidenheim control on any machine, right? And it has certain functions to do, for example, tilted machining. Well, the way to look at tilted machining is it's essentially a trig function. I know where the center of my rotaries lie in relationship to my, she my machine coordinate system, and then I can trig out. Well, in order to be able to trig out, you kind of have to rely that everything is perpendicular and everything is planar where it needs to be. But if it's now at an angle or if it's skewed a little bit, once I start tilting, you know, it's no longer the right calculation, if you will. So that's why I say geometry is very, very important. Um, and that's, uh, you know, what we're looking at, we, we do all this stuff in-house um, and there's several checks that the, it goes through um and has to pass before it becomes a machine essentially um but that's kind of the foundation of it the other thing is is you know Hermley spends a lot of time i would say on developing these so it's not like every year you got this new model coming out it's more like you you got these small changes coming out because you know we want to think through these items and kind of get it optimized to where they where we think they need to be um, in the C series, so that's our current machine series that we have. You know, that's been around for over 20 years now, and we just said, you know, this is really the ideal kinematics. This is really um, how we think that a 5 axis needs to be built, and we'll build on top of that foundation. Yeah, that makes sense. 
Um, so Vidcock asked, 5-axis machining center or 3-axis with a 5-axis rotary. Uh, when would you prefer one or the over the other? So it sounds like you guys are, you know, pretty sure that your uh, Trunion design is, is the right way to go. Um, I guess. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, they're, they're two different animals, right? So you have a 5-axis milling machine, and now let's just, you know, if you were to say, okay, let's just look at all 5-axis milling machines, dedicatedly or dedicated design machines for that purpose. And then you have a three-axis machine and you throw a table on it. Well, that's just it. Is You just took a three-axis machine and you threw a table on it that can now tilt. So, um, you know, I think there's a lot of restrictions in it. And if I wanted to look at five-axis, then I would be looking at a purposely designed five-axis machine. Um, I, I kind of, I don't know how to answer, you know, which one would be better in what scenario. I guess the only time i would say you know i would want to go with the with the rotary setup on top of the table is is if i had a need for a three-axis machine and then every now and then i had a need to be able to manipulate something in space but if i needed a five-axis machine i would never look at a, a three-axis with the rotary table i would always go towards a system that was purposely designed for it um, a large part of that kind of goes back to um you know what i said earlier or where we talked about the the heights and whatnot and the offsets of something so if we look at our machine um you know once i start tilting you know where that where that trunnion is in space is really ideal for me to get to most areas of it so once i start tilting my part and it's really long i want to have that long y travel i don't really need a lot of x travel in our case but i need a lot a lot of uh, y travel um and if you just throw a rotary on your machine there you know it's can it really be so purposely built that it would satisfy all those requirements um and then another thing i mean i i've never personally worked with i mean i see it a lot at customers but those units are pretty tall and i mean i understand three axis machines you have a lot of c-axis travel but i can imagine that that is where you then see uh, max tool lengths becoming a real big issue. Yeah, totally. I think that answers the question perfectly. Yeah. And then moving on to some automation questions from Obsidian Tools. He asked, do most people with automation run their programs the first time at the machine, or is it common to trust the simulation to let it run unattended at the start? Um, I would say that there is a healthy mix of uh, that. It really depends on the customer and their parts, and then uh, what system do they have in place? Um, I can tell you if if you have a good system in place, you really understand that whole process, you can throw that program in and you can say NC start, and then the machine will do exactly what you're telling it to do. You can, you can rely on that, that the machine is gonna do what you're telling it to do. But if you have a bad system in place that doesn't allow for that, then, well, then you're looking at collisions. Um, and I think it's more or less a confidence level of, you know, am I at that point um, of where I can just throw that in there? And that's where you start getting into, um, you know, an area of, uh, you know, what would be important when you're looking at unattended machining. So, for me, um, you know, what's important when you're looking at under unattended machining is, is 
really how is your post processor set up? You know, can you rely that every time you're getting that same output, is it, uh, or is it when you have a certain combination or certain constellation of operations and settings that it then does something different? Um, I kind of want that post processor to always spit out my code in a certain manner with certain, um, let's call them retracts, retract and safety rules. Um, my work holding. So you want to have a certain system that where your work holding is, you know, you put it on there and you can rely that it is there where you had it set in your cam system. Um, it's not just a matter of, all right, I'm going to put a vice on my machine and then I'm going to run my program, right? Um, so a, a good example there too is, is um, you know, does my virtual world match my actual world? And when you look at a vice, well, that vice could be at a one degree angle might not be a lot because you can simply just skew the c-axis and then it's straight but now your computer you're not going to put that vice at a one degree angle right when you make your assembly of your your palette your vice your part you're going to have those nice and straight lined up so now when you do your simulation you're going to simulate it to that well what happens with that one degree in real world when that table is tilted at that all the way out at this end you know that's where you start running into issues there your tool libraries. Uh, you you want to have a system of, you know, how do I define my tools when the tool gets assembled? You know, is it always going to be what I actually simulated? And I think once you start putting all these things together and you have a good system in place, yeah, definitely. You can go out there, you can load everything up and you're going to press NC start because at that point, you, you know, you, when you have an automated system, you don't want to use it as a machine that just sits there and you're running apart for hours and then you're like okay i think i got everything and now i'm gonna let it run overnight um i think a lot of times you need to get to that point and then let it let it just do its thing and trust in your system awesome yeah um and then he also asked what are key points people miss when they want to run parts unattended so like what uh, pitfalls do you see when customers approach you you know for an automated solution what what I guess, what are their misconceptions or, or what, what are they missing? Um, I think that kind of reflects back on, on the past is, um, you know, for example, your post-processor, it has to be set up for, for automation. It, uh, you know, if, if you're just, if you're standing in front of a machine and running it and you have your hand on the potentiometer, you, you can catch things. But for me, it's more important than to, you know, after, certain operations come up, go over, then tilt my table and then come back and come back down and then continue machining. Um, a lot of people might say, well, that's really inefficient and it takes a couple of seconds out, but um, you know, I can rely on that process and you have to have that kind of like, you have to have a concrete post that does the same thing every time and you can rely on the same thing with the, you know, your tooling. You, you can't, go in there and say, you know what, I got my tool library and I just need a millimeter more stick out on this tool. And then you pull it out a millimeter or you push it in or whatever it may be. And then you have it in your system while you're running it. The computer thinks it's a 50 millimeter stick out. It's going to calculate everything to it. It's going to collision check to everything to it. And, um, you know, those are the things that you then have to pay attention to. Um, and once you don't pay attention to that, I think that's where people have issues when it comes to automation because, you know, then collisions start happening. Um, the other big thing I would say is, is 
plan ahead with what do you want in your process. So don't don't start out throwing programs at your automation until you have an understanding, okay, do I want to check for tool wear? Do I want to check for tool breakage? Um, you know, what do I want to have happen at what point in time? So you can put all the information already into your uh, into your post. You know, if, if you do a lot of drilling, well, do you want to use the automatic uh, breakage function or do you want to write your own routine? And when it gets to automation, I would say definitely write your own routine because the automatic breakage, it's just going to say, well, tool's broken. Well, what do you do now? Do you, um, you know, do you continue on? Do you not continue on? If you write your own routines at that point, you, you can make those determinations. And understanding what you want your process to look like is key. And I think that's where a lot of people are like, well, I got this machine sitting on the floor. I need to get going. And you start heading a direction, but you might kind of back yourself into a corner. And in a year from now, you're like, oh, I really would need this. I really would need this. And then, you know, a lot of customers do approach us with that. And they're like, I need this, I need this, and I need this. Well, we need to change this in your post. We need to do this. Ah, I don't want to do that because my whole system's already set up for that. Um, a lot of things what we see is, um, so both the Heidenheim and Siemens allow for, um, in your when you're calling up your tool, to either use a name or a number. So a lot of people, they'll start out using numbers. So they'll call up tool one, they'll call up tool two, they'll call up tool three. But when you get into automation, you know, you want to be able to use sister tools because potentially you have a, long of, a lot of unattended uh, runtime, but you need multiple tools. So if you go by the uh, um, number convention, well, what number replaces that tool versus if you go with the naming convention, the way the system happens, it starts searching for the tool at the top of the list and it searches through. And all right, I found my 12 millimeter end mill, 124 XYZ. Can I use it? Yes. Okay, I'm going to get that into the spindle. Now that's run for 500 hours, puts it back into the magazine. And then when that tool gets called up again, it's going to hit that uh, tool in the list and say, hey, I found my tool. Uh, but I can't use it because it's locked out through time. And then it's going to search or continue searching through the list until it finds another tool with that name without you having to go in there and say, well, tool 100 is replaced by 105. Gotcha. That makes, yeah, that, that's a really nice option actually on those controls. And, but what a lot of people have done is, you know, they've set up their entire tool libraries based on numbers. So it's, you know, it's one of those things that you definitely want to consider before you invest, you know, potentially years worth of time in um, setting up a tool library. Yeah. Well, I think, like you said, a lot of people come from a FANUC-based background where you don't really have an option. So it, it makes sense that people would start down that path and then realize their error. Yep. No, definitely. I, uh, that's understandable. So, but one of the things too is, you know, what we try to at least do is uh, we try to talk to the customer and, you know, when we can see, all right, you know, they're, they're heading an avenue is, you know, at least put that information out there uh, so they can make the decisions um, that they need. Totally. Um, so I guess we can wrap up with some more fun questions that Jake had. Um, I have to ask about this one. He mentioned, do you guys have a badass coffee maker? 
Yeah, um, I think he was thinking as a retinal scanner to see whether you have red eyes and need like a extra strong dose. Um, but it's essentially this coffee maker that has a touch screen and you can pick coffee, you know, then you can pick how strong you want the coffee and uh, um, then it grinds up the the, uh, the beans and uh, mixes up your coffee. And you can select if you want a cappuccino, this or that. So yes, we still do have that, but we actually moved that coffee machine into our uh, new break room um, and it's no longer available for customers. Oh, he's going to. Well, we do fun. have a replacement coffee machine, but it's not as uh, fancy. So <laughs> it's, uh, one of those, you know, where you have a, a cup you can select which kind of type of coffee you want. And, um, that's what we've got set up right now. So you said new break room. So how is the expansion project at uh, Hermley going? Hermley USA going? Essentially, we are done with the expansion at this point. Um, we're still moving into the showroom right now. Uh, still trying to get everything set up the way we want it, but the expansion uh, was completed a couple months ago. Um, so we've added a significant amount of warehouse space. The uh, showroom slash warehouse, or I should say the former showroom slash warehouse space has now become completely dedicated to showroom. Uh, showroom. It was completely remodeled. Um, new paint, new um, electrical system, new air system. Um, to make it as flexible as we can. And then, you know, our warehouse portion now just is going to allow us to, you know, process things quite a bit faster as well as store more parts. I mean, uh, one of the things that you you look at when, um, you know, your machine tool builder is, well, I have to have X amount of parts um, available. And every year when you sell more machines, well, then you also need more inventory and spare parts in order to be able to say, hey, we have these parts in stock and essentially we can ship them out next day to you and you'll have them and not wait for a shipment uh, from Germany. Awesome. Yeah, that kind of uh, support is really amazing. Um, so he yeah. also asked, will you or Gunther be the first to fly on the private jet? Yeah, well, that's a, uh, that's a definitely up to... Uh, to uh, Ryan and Jacob, uh, who do you want to invite first on the plane? I mean, I definitely want to fly first, so I can uh, <laughs> finally sit in a luxury seat and not be behind the curtain. But uh, I guess that's up to them too. <laughs> um, and then his last two were, who at Perryman was the best with a shotgun and when can he come back to visit? All right. Well, I'm not going to go on who was the best uh, at a shotgun, but when I was there, uh, um, one of the uh, managers invited us to uh, go out and do shotgun shooting. So myself, the guys from Perryman, as well as the gentleman from Autodesk um, that was there for developing the post, uh, we went out and uh, did a little bit of trap shooting. It was a great time. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. And essentially, I mean, uh, any currently, I mean, a, we can um, accept customers and uh, somebody can come here if they want to visit, take a look at what we have standing in our showroom and uh, take a look at our product um, at any time, really. Um, best thing is, is if you give us a little bit of heads up, because then we can also make sure that, you know, you, you have somebody with you and we can spend a little bit of time with you on certain things, things that you might want to see. But anytime, uh, Jacob, you can come back. Awesome. Well, um, that, that takes care of our questions. Is there anything you want to plug? Do you guys have any webinars or, um, you know, uh, 
most events are canceled at this point, but is there anything that people should look forward to coming from Hermley? Yeah. Um, so with the showroom, I would expect this to be ready within the next four weeks. At that point, we'll start our trainings again. Um, so it is uh, laid out. So we, we in the past, we've had trainings every month. And uh, unfortunately, due to the construction and also partially due to COVID and how all that got delayed a little bit, um, we, we had a break here for some time and uh, we'll start that back up um, probably around November-ish. Awesome. So coming soon. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Um, I, I've definitely learned a lot that I didn't know. Yeah, same here. Thank oh, you thanks, so much. Thanks uh, for having me. All right, guys, we will thanks see you me. in another week with another episode with Dylan and I.